You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you. We thank you that you are a God who discloses himself, who reveals himself, who desires to both know and to be known. Would you this morning, O oh God, illuminate your word and empower us as hearers, not just to listen to your word, but to respond to it in obedience. We ask nothing less than for you to teach us, O oh God, how to love like you love. Amen. I want to welcome uh, Jennifer Parham to read our scripture selection for this morning. Our scripture this morning is from Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third, and we're grateful to have you with us this morning. We are four weeks into our series for the fall, uh, exploring the book of Ruth. It's called Love Without Limits. And the question that we're asking in this series is this, what does it mean for us to be people who love like God loves in a world that is marked by chaos, division, and suffering? How can we as Third Church be marked not by the world around us, but by God's hesed, his covenant-keeping, faithful love? And how can we extend that love to one another, to our city, and to this world? Last week, Corey talked about how love commits. Love makes bold and costly promises. And a natural question that emerges out of the end of chapter one and out of the idea that God and his love commits and makes promises, a natural question is this, so now what? What does Hesed require of me once I've committed myself to someone else? What, what comes in the wake of love's promise? Well, the second chapter of Ruth gives us an answer to that question, and it's this. Love gets to work. Love labors. Love follows through. There are three things in particular that uh, I hope that we can see from our text this morning about the work of Hesed love, and, and they are these three. 
First, love responds with faithful service to others. Love risks all for the flourishing of others, and love reveals both who and whose we are. So let's look at the first one of those. Love responds in faithful service to others. Before we jump into our text in particular, I want to do just a little bit of context work. Two things to pull forward into our our time today from the end of chapter one. First, Ruth makes an epic and legendary promise at the end of chapter one, right? Your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. And in response, Naomi makes an equally epic but depressing proclamation. My life has been made bitter. I am empty. I have nothing and no one God himself has brought me to ruin. That was Naomi's response to Ruth's promise. On the heels of that depressing proclamation at the end of chapter one, Ruth, at the beginning of our chapter, at the beginning of our text today, responds by choosing to set out about the work of serving Naomi. She has to get to it. Verse two as you read it, leads us to believe that Ruth did not even take time to rest from their long travel for Moab before she began to serve Naomi. She asks Naomi's permission, can I go to the fields to glean some from behind the harvesters? And Naomi says, sure, go. Now, I think it's important to recognize the setting of Ruth chapter two in particular has become so romanticized In Christian communities, it is hard to recognize it uh, in its original context. It reads often like some kind of Amish romance novel, (laughs) and it's just as awkward. And I think that we do a disservice to the text in some ways when we think about those things and have those images. Images um, like the smell of fresh grain and happy harvesting songs. Uh, this, This is not the scenario in which Ruth found herself. Uh, Her call to work was perilous and dangerous. There was a provision called gleaning. This is something that God had ordained in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And and this is what it did. It allowed Israel to, uh, to, to make sure that the destitute, the poor, the fatherless, the widow among them were able to reap gleanings from the harvest of other people. And so in doing so, it's sort of a welfare safety net, a way to take care of the the least of those among them. And so uh, this is how it worked. There was a communal field in Bethlehem. And harvesters of that land were supposed to take the corners and the edges of their allotments. And they were not to harvest that. They were to leave that for the poor and the destitute to come along and do themselves. And when they did harvest the land, they were only to take one pass And whatever they left and didn't get on that first pass, whatever dropped to the ground, that was also for the poor and for the destitute. And the work of grueling, uh, the the work of reaping was was grueling, grueling work. This is hard work. There were often two sets of laborers. Male laborers would do the most difficult part of the work. They would grab handfuls and armfuls of grain stalks with one hand. Bending down, they would take a stone sickle and cut them off at the root. Then they would lay those cut stalks on the ground. A group of, of hired female workers would often come in their wake, and they would take those stalks, bundle them together, put them on carts where they'd be taken to the threshing floor. 
This is the kind of work that Ruth does by herself. This is grueling work for anyone, especially for a young woman in a foreign land. And what Ruth is telling us is this, is that the work of love, the work of Hesed is hard work. It is grueling. It is not romantic. Hesed doesn't make empty promises. It doesn't count good intentions as faithfulness. No, Hesed acts in a thousand mundane and arduous ways. Hesed serves. It's hard work. It's also selfless work. You know, maybe the most convicting part of this passage is actually that Naomi, that, that Ruth loves Naomi devoid of her own ego. It's the selfless nature of her love. It's a love that serves regardless of Naomi's response. If you notice, Naomi does nothing in this text. Nothing except say, you can go to the field. And what we are supposed to glean from that as readers is this, is that Naomi is frozen in her depression. She is uh, just snatched, caught in, in the throes of her grief. She can't even, notice this, she can't even take initiative to be able to provide for her own survival. Ruth would be justified in saying, I'm not doing this for her. She doesn't deserve this. She rejected my promise, and now she won't even do anything herself. But we read nothing about fairness in Ruth's responses. We read nothing about her uh, being concerned about Naomi's motivations or her emotional state. No, this is selfless service. I love the way that Paul Miller says it. He says it this way. Love that serves regardless of another's response is the face of Hesed. Isn't that great? The face of Hesed. It is what Hesed looks like. Now, I know that many of you, when you hear a sermon on love, may not expect to hear words like grueling, selfless, death, perilous, um, and yet I think those are perhaps the most appropriate words uh, to talk about any kind of love, particularly Hesed love. I think it's particularly difficult in our age of social media where dramatic and demonstrative and always escalating acts of love are manufactured and pushed on every platform to do what? To make the work of love seem effortless, easy, simple. No one posts on Facebook pictures of their perfect family and writes something like 17 years ago, I met my wife and began the thankless, mundane, back-breaking work of loving her and our children. Nobody writes that. No one, no one posts, I married Derek Mondu 19 years ago, and I may have made a huge mistake. <laughs> Though I would not put it past my wife to do so. The reason why we don't post like that, the reason why we don't see that is because we don't want others to see, we don't want to be reminded ourselves of the reality of what we know is true, that, that love that is worth anything takes a lot of work. 
I'm reminded of the story of Brad, one of my students at UVA. Um, I discipled Brad for about three years, and Brad had this rhythm in his life. He would start dating a, uh, a girl uh, early in the fall, and things would be great. And then it would get somewhere in the middle of the spring semester, and uh, they would get to know each other, maybe have a fight or something, and then everything would kind of start to go south. And then Brad would say something like, I think that God is maybe calling me out of this relationship. And, uh, and, and, and like, surprisingly, he already had another target. Like, and there's this, just happens to be this girl in this other class of mine. That happened his first year, happened his second year. Now in his third year, Brad started dating Julie and was, she was so far out of his league, like playing a whole other ball game. She was incredible. So all of his friends were like, dude, do not mess this up. Do not mess this up. Do not mess this up. And sure enough, middle of the spring semester, what happens? He comes into my office, and it's not a joke. I mean, he really feels this. He's, he's just like, I, I, just, I think maybe I'm, I'm just falling out of love with her. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And so this is what I said to him. I said, uh, Brad, look, you, you've never experienced anything more than infatuation uh, or lust. And so um, here's what you need to do. Um, I think that maybe, maybe you should start doing the, just the hard work of loving somebody when you don't feel it, or loving, like when it's hard. You've dated Julie just long enough to know that she can be annoying, okay? You've, you've dated her just enough so that she can hurt you, so she can see how sinful you really are, how you're not all that you say that you are. What if you do this and said, what if you, instead of like leaving right now, what if you just finished one cycle of committed love? Just one, just, just one cycle where you serve her and stay committed to her and then you wait for your emotions to, to come back and your feelings to come back for her. Then you start thinking and praying about what to do with your relationship. I'll never forget what his response was. He looked at me and goes, that can happen? Like literally, I didn't know that was a thing. Like that, that can really happen? Yes, absolutely. It's called committed love. It can happen. And when your emotions return, when your feelings return, they can return stronger than before. And so... With the help of many friends, he uh, was pushed back into that relationship with Julie. They got married. They've got two kids. Uh, that does not happen every time, by the way. Those of you that are looking for a system, that's not, that's, that's not the point of that story. Um, but when I've, when I've spoken with him, uh, we, we're still in regular touch. When, I, when I've spoken with him, uh, one of the things that we remark on is that that cycle never gets any easier, does it? How many times, Sue and I often will say, how many times do we have to go through this? Seven times 70? <laughs> Hurting each other, being committed to each other, not feeling it, coming back, loving one another again. Like how many times? Seven times 70? Weeks, months, years sometimes is the wait. And it's not just true just of dating relationships or marriages. It is true of any relationship with your children, with your friendships, with your church, we just made covenant promises to one another. With one another, this is true. How do we love when we don't feel it? Love that is committed, love that serves faithfully, regardless of people's response. And here's a question I feel like God wants to push into us, is this, what work is he calling you to? What is the, what is the work he's calling you to serve those that you love? What's the work that he's calling you to? Some of you, you know exactly what it is. It popped in your head. It's the thing you don't want to do. It's the thing 
your wife asks you to do or your husband asks you to do all the time. It's that thing. Some of you don't know what it is. And if that's you, I want you to know the people you have hesed with, they know. And so maybe the boldest thing that we can do out of our time in this text today is this. Make an appointment before the end of today. Make an appointment with the one you've got hesed with, the one you know God's calling you to love, and ask them two questions. How can I serve you? What do you really need from me in this season of our life? What do you really need from me? And then just do it faithfully. First thing that we see in the text is love responds with faithful service. Second is that love risks all for the flourishing of others. Ruth risks everything to serve Naomi. Her vulnerability all over this text. As a foreigner, unmarried woman, she is the most vulnerable member of her society. This is a time of the judges. It is marked and known by violence to women. Read Judges 19, one of the most violent texts in all the scriptures, used as an indicator of what life was like at the time that Ruth's story is taking place. She's also completely uninformed. She just got back from Moab. She doesn't know whose field she's working at. She doesn't know any of the other workers. Gleaners like her were often mistreated. A landowner didn't have to have them on her. I mean, they, they could absolutely take advantage of them. They had no status, no power. To serve Naomi, Ruth risked everything. Anybody at any moment could have come along and taken her, her possessions, her life. Without the protection of a man or a clan or a people, Ruth worked on the edge of a knife. And that's the work of love, a work that risks all in order to serve others. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies, little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Why? Because to love is to be vulnerable. To love is to risk. I wish I could tell you that there was a different way, but there isn't. You, you hear me, church, you cannot choose hesed and safety. You cannot choose them both. You cannot have hesed and safety. And as if the risk to her wasn't enough, rebellious Ruth, our righteous rule breaker, risks even more. You see, she didn't want just leftover scraps. She didn't want to, to just uh, have Naomi survive. She wanted her to flourish. She wanted to feed her. And you cannot flourish off of gleanings. You could barely survive. So what does she do? She does something bold. She uses all that influence she doesn't have. <laughs> and she requests of the landowner 
that she doesn't know to let her do what no gleaner does. Instead of working on the edges of the corner, I want to work where it's not permitted for me to work, right amongst the harvesters, where plenty of newly cut grain would be within grasp for me and this woman whom I'm called to love, Naomi. That is love that risks all. Now, we've said this a couple times in this series. I'm going to say it again. When we talk about risk, I'm not talking about entering into abusive situations. And when we're talking about risk here, we're not talking about self-destructive patterns that are not redemptive. We're talking about someone who is fearless in fulfilling their vow of love to another. Robert Hubbard puts it this way. Ruth showed herself to be anything but a modest, self-effacing foreigner. Rather, she emerges as a courageous model of risk-taking devotion that we should emulate. I love that phrase, risk-taking devotion. And I love Lewis's language, right? Because we know that it's true. It is painful to love selflessly. It is, it is an exposing love by nature. And the only thing I can promise you, brothers and sisters, as you do this, is that you will be hurt repetitively. You can be rejected, alienated. Someone might take advantage of you. And that costs us much. But Lewis reminds us there is a greater cost. There's the cost of being wounded for the sake of love, but then there is the cost of locking our hearts away. There is the cost of a love that does not risk, that becomes a heart so hardened that it cannot yield itself to another person again. Hesed risks all for the flourishing of others. I want to talk a little bit real quick about what this might look like. First, what's a risk that we can take? I think some of us manage risk um, by limiting the number of people that we have to love. <laughs> some of you are phenomenal managers of your emotions and uh, commitments. And I want to really challenge that for us, that, that we should probably expand, uh, expand the scope of our hesed. And I think it's really important. I, I, there are five men, there are other men I have hesed with, there are five men I had hesed with before I ever had it with Sue. Since freshman year of college, I'm going to tell you their names, not because, not to inform you, but to honor them. They're Jason Carter, they're Graham Davis, they're Adam Gilbert, <laughs> they're Frank Sellers, they're Kent Ryburn. These are five men I have had Hesed with long before I had Hesed with my wife. And this is important <laughs> because it has forced me to expand the life of my commitments, expand my heart, expand my ability to love and give and receive love from others. And it's important because we can't let this, this idea of hesed and this idea of love that serves be confined to marriages and families. There are people in this room who are single. There are people in this room who are divorced, who have lost spouses, who have lost children. And for all of us, this work of hesed continues and God is asking us to risk, to extend that hesed to others. For those of us who've engaged in this love, I want to ask, what things have you wrapped your heart in to avoid the pain and the risk of serving other people? 
What are you most scared of? What, what is the most vulnerable thing about moving towards someone else? What are you really, what are you terrified of that love might ask of you? What do you need from God to be able to expose yourself and to risk love again? We cannot choose both hesed and safety because love risks all for the flourishing of others. And the last thing that we see in our text is that love reveals both who we are and whose we are. One of the things I love about these last few verses in our passage is that they are rife with questions about Ruth's identity. Who is this person? It's at this point in the text that we discover that Ruth is working in the field of a man named Boaz. Now, we heard about Boaz in verse 1. It was almost like an aside. It was a piece of information that we knew as readers that the characters in our story, they don't know. And this is what we find out about Boaz. Uh, He is a man of high social standing, high integrity. He is wealthy. So he has great influence amongst his peers in Bethlehem. He's a man who can get things done. And he is, by all accounts, a good man. And we learn this other thing. He has a connection to Naomi. He is from the same clan as Elimelech. He is related to her. So Boaz shows up on the scene, and he's a good manager. So what does he do? He greets his harvesters. Lord be with you. Lord bless you. And because he's a good manager, he knows those who work for him. And so as he scans the field, he notices that there's one woman that he doesn't recognize. And so he pulls his overseer over, and he says to him, to whom does this woman belong? Now, that can sound harsh on contemporary ears. Uh, but there's some context work we need to do there. This is not a question of ownership. It's a question of identity. In a non-Western world, people are not defined individually. They are defined only, understood, in relationship to a group, a village, a people, a clan. So in the contemporary West, we might say, who are you? In the ancient Near East, they would say, who are your people? And we'd be asking the same question. Her identity, who is she? And the response of the overseer is amazing. It's not a response that we expect. Now, the text is super clear. We have got to notice this. Her name is not mentioned. So in, during all of this inquiry, her name is not mentioned. She, it's omitted. She's unknown to them. And what the overseer does in the last couple of verses is basically give to Boaz an account of Ruth's Hesed. Isn't that beautiful? She is named by her love. She is unknown to them but will be known through the loving service that she has given to Naomi. It is how she loved Naomi, her hesed, that will tell Boaz who this woman is. And this is what the overseer says. She's a Moabite woman, mentions it twice, bringing special attention to it, highlighting the great risk that she was in to be gleaning by herself, highlighting that she was an outsider, not of Israel. She returned here with Naomi to Bethlehem, highlighting she is destitute. There's no man or family to cover her. And highlighting that she has chosen Yahweh and to be with Yahweh's people in Yahweh's land instead of the safety of her own people in Moab. 
She's worked hard, it says in verse 6, with little rest. And she has filed, like we talked about already, a bold request to glean amongst the harvesters. This shows her desperation for Naomi. It also shows the capacity of her love. And it shows a third thing, that she's a woman of character. Even in her desperate state, she respects Yahweh's laws and other people's dignity. She's not going to steal. She's not going to bully others. She makes a request to the overseer to do what she needs to do to love Naomi well. How she loved revealed who she was. Jennifer, uh, earlier when I was talking with her before the service, and we were talking about how much we love this chapter, she said this thing that I think is great. She says this, in chapter two, Ruth explodes with Hesed. And it's, it's totally true. That's exactly what's happening in our passage. She is exploding with Hesed. And what does, it re- what, what does this reveal about Ruth? What does this say about her? That she is someone who trusts Yahweh to the uttermost. She's the only person in the story that is acting like God is the main character. So, so Yahweh may be hidden to us as readers, but the beauty of this passage is that he is not hidden to Ruth. She knows who she is covenanted with, and it is Yahweh. And it reveals not just who she is, but also whose she is. There are these beautiful hidden things in our text, too, places where you see God's uh, providence for Naomi and God's compassion for Naomi. There's some um, sarcastic Hebrew going on here in the Hebrew, um, where uh, three times it highlights, luckily, by chance, she just happened to be in a field where Boaz is, who's related to Naomi. It's not coincidence. It's the hand of Yahweh, his providential purposes, providing for the one who trusts him. And there's compassion in this text directly from Yahweh. It isn't, Boaz isn't the real landowner. Who is the true landowner in the Old Testament over these fields? It's Yahweh himself. His compassion is coming down through the generations to be able to provide for Naomi and for Ruth. It is beautiful. And it's the last thing this passage teaches us about Hesed, about love, is that love reveals who we are and whose we are. It reveals our identity and God's identity. So I want to close by saying, what what does this mean for us, the church? Ruth stands to us as a beautiful example of how Hesed, God's covenant, faithful love, calls us to cruciform love. It calls us to a cross-shaped love, a love that dies to ourself, a love that serves the most undeserving among us, even our enemies. Philippians 2, we're not going to read all of it. Philippians 2 reveals to us that it is actually in the person of Jesus that both Hesed love and cruciform love are perfectly modeled. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He became human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the good news for us, that it is in Jesus who has risked all to serve us with his love. In his incarnation, he came to earth, leaving the majesty and the safety and the security of heaven. 
And he chose to be born in the most vulnerable form possible, a child, a refugee child. And he took the form of a servant. And it is through him that the most excruciating, humiliating acts of selfless love that the world has ever seen came to be. And this, this, is, this is how the story comes together. That the work of God's hesed is this. He redeems the world through love. And the beautiful thing for you and me, Christian, is that we are invited, invited to participate with him in it. This is a love that cannot be stopped. It loves in spite of death. It loves through death. And, and perhaps the greatest gift of Ruth's story to us is this, is that it reminds us that we are called as a people to love like God loves through mundane and spectacular acts. We participate with God in redeeming this world through love. It's a love that risks. It's a love that serves. It's a love that reveals. And as we know, one day, it will be the love that renews all things. Let's pray. Father, these, these things are almost too great for us to talk of, to speak of. I feel the uh, weight and the gravity of your, um, of your own self as we talk about the depth of your love. And I'm also reminded of how uh, unfaithful I am in my hesed. We, we are not a faithful people. <laughs> uh, that is not where our story begins. And so we, we begin there as well to say, have mercy on us, O oh God, for um, our unfaithfulness. And we say thank you for your faithfulness, faithfulness to us, even as we are unfaithful. I simply ask for my brothers and sisters that you would, um, you would give them the resources that they need, that, that we would turn to you to receive the power and the love or the self-control that we need to love like you love, to be men and women of Hesed. Not because it makes us feel good, but because it is for your glory and for the sake of others and the flourishing of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.